0: memory, the ghost of the love. Hello everyone and welcome to another ScotsWay podcast and I'm joined today by journalist, broadcaster and TV executive Stuart Grosgrove. Stuart, thank you for joining us. Thank you
1: indeed, it's a pleasure.
0: And we're going to hear to talk about your um, book Detroit 67, The Year That Changed Soul. Yes. Um, So you're it's fair enough to say you're
1: a soul fanatic. I uh, absolutely, say. and obsessive, and proudly so. Yeah. So, how did you get into soul music? Well, soul music's been something that's been a, a, a kind of recurring um, a passion in my, my entire life almost since I was a kind of young teenager. I grew up in uh, Letham in Perth. My sister was a first generation mod right. in, in Scotland and kind of was in the kind of scooter scene and things like that. And she um, firstly introduced me to what was then probably early R and B music. So it was things like Howlin' Wolf was Otis Redding, Wilson Pickett, you know, Lee Dorsey, things like that, some of it was actually quite raw in terms of, you know, the kind of, the sound of it, quite gut-bucket kind of R&B, and gradually, of course, a lot of that smoothed out when the Motown scene came in in the mid-60s, and that was a much more kind of popular, joyous kind of, maybe even commercial form of African-American music. But I'd kind of grown up with all of that, and so that was the first spark of an interest. By the age of 16, it was kind of starting to dominate my life and from then on it's been the consistent thing I mean that and maybe actually St Johnson Football Club are the two big consistents in my life you know apart from family and things like that you know but um Yeah, it's been a a lifelong passion. Uh, The book itself actually took several years, maybe five years to kind of fully kind of research and write and whatever, and even that is maybe underestimating it a little bit because I did a PhD in in American history, I spent a lot of time in in the States and and I've been a collector in the rare northern soul scene for, certainly since I was about 18 year old, so you accrue knowledge and understanding and awareness of kind of people and names and places, and the city of Detroit is writ large within I mean, it's a a fundamentally important uh, place for the whole of African-American culture, but particularly the music scene. And so, you know, I'd visited it several times And when I was a PhD student in America. I wasn't in Detroit, but I was certainly in America and was uh, staying in touch with the music scene and whatever. So that was the kind of overall sort of vantage point of how I got into it uh-huh. uh, but I think maybe you can you can probably detect a wee bit of the kind of influence of my television thinking in the book because the book is actually um, the, the book is actually quite formatted in, mm-hmm. in the way that t- TV often formats itself um, so basically it's Detroit 67 the year that changed soul and it follows the it follows the biography of the city of Detroit in the year nineteen sixty-seven, and it has twelve chapters: January, February, March, all the way through to December of that year. And it chooses that year because many of the big, big strands of um, uh, society and, and social history of America are coming to fruition in yeah, that it's a year. pivotal year. Pivotal year, yes. I mean, the rise of the war in Vietnam, the the summer urban riots, um, the FBI's um, tailing of Martin Luther King leading uh, uh, to his assassination the following year. So there's all sorts of these big social history things going on which always have some kind of locus within the city of Detroit mm-hmm. and within Detroit's own history, of course, it has the the worst urban riots in its modern um, time in, in uh, July of 1967 and um, it's the year where... Tammy Terrell collapses on stage with a brain haemorrhage and breaks up the Marvin Gaye Tammy Terrell yep. duet uh, the Supremes are imploding and falling out with each other and eventually break up that year Florence Ballard who ultimately becomes the tragic figure within the book yep. actually ends her career at Motown in that year so there's so many things going on I mean it's, it's, it's immense it's a big book it's 700 pages it's a beast you, you know say it took yeah. you know,
0: five yeah. years
1: or more and the Take five years to read it <laughs>
0: <laughs> the research is astonishing really um if, to say, uh, if you were to say, oh, it's a, it's a book about soul music, it's so yeah. much more, because there's the a yeah. social political history thing going on. On, yeah. And also, most people would say, if you're going to write a book that concentrates on Motown mainly, yeah. in terms yeah. of the music, you would maybe do it at the start. But this is at a time where it's all beginning to unravel. Ravel, it feels yeah. that way. Yeah,
1: it does, yeah. And it feels like quite a lot of the kind of certainties that had once held the city together. I mean, quite interestingly, that at the very beginning of the story, Uh, Motown, or uh, rather the city of Detroit, has um, had a relatively successful two or three years prior to that. It was actually being talked about in, you know, the news magazines as being the model city being organised, but under the then mayor of Detroit, a guy called Jerome Cavanagh, who was an Irish-American mayor who had many similarities to John F. Kennedy from the same community young, quite charismatic man Democrat, you know, and um, Kavanaugh had been able to kind of shape Detroit and one of his great successes was that he'd won more money from federal inner city poverty programs than any other mayor comparatively across the whole of the United States, more than Chicago more than LA, whatever and that had helped the inner-city struggle in Detroit, at least helped the kind of right. safety net, if you like, okay. of quite a lot of particularly young unemployed people in ghetto uh, conditions and things like that. But the war in Vietnam, as it escalated, took more money out of domestic politics and moved it into the military yeah. and into this foreign war that was endless and yeah. endlessly expensive. Of and it became a problem then that when uh, Detroit were no longer getting the income of federal aid that the city started to fall apart yeah. now that was not helped by January the beginning of the book which uh, begins with the worst snowstorm in Detroit's history yeah. where in actual fact the, the mayor of Detroit, Jer- Jerome Kavanagh is left with this for the first time ever, a huge deficit in public funding brought about largely by them having to clear the roads and put out kind of 24 hour uh, road clearance projects and things like that yeah. Losing work because people were going elsewhere because you couldn't you couldn't move around in yeah, Detroit. Of course. The, the, a lot of the car plants were closed for days on end. So that damaged the kind of if you like the social economy of the city, which then wasn't getting the money from central government, and the whole thing started to kind of, you know, collapse from there. By the summer, when the riots kick in, of course it becomes a city known for notoriety and for decline and decay and, and eventually ultimately yeah. uh, decades later bankruptcy. Yeah, you know, so it was, it was a it's a terribly you know it's a terribly sad story of how a city can fall into that kind of decay. And you know? very quickly yeah. as well. Yeah, really quickly, you know. And and a city that probably a lot of people would have said, certainly if you were living in Scotland, yep. you know, you would have said that Detroit with the motor industry and that was something that central Scotland aspired to. Exactly. Yeah. Fact, ironically, the the big that we had at the time, Linwood. Mm-hmm. That the actual village of Linwood was called after a street in Detroit, Detroit Linwood Avenue, right. which was the headquarters of Chrysler. You know, and when they opened their plants in the UK, it became the Linwood plant simply because that's what their address was in Detroit. Now we assume in Scotland that somehow it was always called Linwood. Yeah, there's it was called yeah, Linwood. Exactly. It's a plant called Linwood and that closed as well. You know? Of course. Yeah. Um. It's
0: central to, to this is the, the huge character of Barry Gordy in terms yes. of time. Yes. And he seems to be a man struggling to come to terms with the times,
1: you know, yes. the hippie movement are coming in. Yeah, and he's pretty and much against that countercultural yeah, scene. exactly. And and I think that there's a kind of there's a there's a kind of rationale for that because you know I I, I tried, you know, somebody said to me in the, in the book, "Come on then, who, who's the baddie?" And I thought <laughs> there isn't a baddie, and there isn't a truly a goodie either James because Brown come out too, yeah. James Brown comes out of it very badly he's, he's probably my token baddie right? but, but the thing is that the, the thing is that Barry Gordy had this idea that he had watched, he'd, ha, he'd had a small a jazz shop in Detroit that he'd set up and they'd gone bust and you know, he'd, he'd been bankrupted out of that, that business although he's from a very wealthy family so it didn't really impact him yeah. too much but he was working in the car plants at the time and he'd become aware of the fact that Black American music, the blues, jazz, he was aware of how poor distribution was, and how they were actually increasingly marginalised from the stores that really sold records in volume. Yeah. You know, whether they were Woolworths or whether they were kind of high street or mall stores across America. And he had this belief that Black American music, particularly the kind of funk traditions or the R and B traditions, of um, Kind of ghetto music had also, in a way, almost kind of discriminated against themselves, then actually ghettoised themselves by never ever kind of understanding that music also had to have other things going for it. Now, it's quite a hard thing to understand that, but. He, he believed that Motown had to reach into the mainstream rather than hide on the margins yep. Detroit was full of about, I think probably a number 300 small independent labels, many, incredible, It's incredible it was like a kaleidoscope of these labels and they were all out there many of them the margins, people kind of selling records to the backs of motor cars and people that have got kind of records that were barely kind of well produced I mean, just like an indie sector in almost any culture sure. and it was a real kind of Klondike, but Motown hired uh, two, two or three guys, but one guy that I talk a lot about in the book um, who's a ge- guy called Barney Alice, is an he's a, he's a Sicilian-American white white man who they'd hired from, I think, Warner Brothers and he built up an amazing um, network of distribution and Barry Gordy believed that the only way that black American music would get sold in southern stores is if it was represented by white managers so he went and hired white managers to make sure yeah. those stores would take stock right, and, okay. you know, and things like that where he was very I think cleverly trying to kind of say if we want to stay in the ghetto that's fine but that's where we'll stay if we want to break out of the ghetto there's some compromises we're going to have to make and here are some of the compromises and I think that he softened there was, a, there was a, a generation of people that signed for Motown, there's a, a woman called Hattie Littles, there was a, a, a guy called um, Sing Sammy Ward and they're kind of R&B singers, you go back yeah. to the early music, it's great but it's quite gut bucket, it's a bit raw mm-hmm. they've got great voices but it's sandpaper so, yeah, you know yeah, what I mean, yeah, yeah. and he wanted people were smoother, more supper club more, yeah, more a eloquent, a bit of showbiz, a bit of Las Vegas and he took on the national networks for television, Las Vegas itself the the kind of the holiday resorts he you know he would put artists in all of those places where white America would see them and where they could therefore cross over now some people would see that as a compromise other people would say it as the greatest strategic movie ever made yeah, you know yeah. um, so you, you know you pay your money you take your choice there's you know? a great phrase
0: mm-hmm. in there about the way he presented the Supremes as pop girls pop geishas and when you exactly, see the way yep. it
1: was that it was that sort of thing and we are here to serve I mean it was actually quite also I think quite quite interesting about some of the things that he did, he, he, he was a great... Firstly, I think one of the things that he was fantastic at was that he understood Fordism, or kind of the Taylorist system of division of labour, yeah. which was a big thing in, in Detroit. It was all over the city as being discussed in every pub and this whole idea of you only do that job and you do it to perfection and you repeat it and repeat right. it and repeat it and repeat it. And that's kind of what's in the Motown creative system. Yeah there was very little kind of, Marvin Gaye sometimes could buck the system, but very few others, most people, you were hired as a saxophonist, you did your shift and you went, (laughs) and then you went to a bar and you moonlighted and you got a wee bit of money they come back the next day and you were still a saxophonist and you were still expected to do a a 30 second sax solo in the middle of, and that's how they composed things, I mean much like Barry Gordy himself had worked putting in the glove departments on the fronts of cars and that was his job, you know and he realised that that was how music could be made, and So at Motown to this time, I mean, it's quite interesting that they made lots and lots of backing tracks which were reused. Endless times on with a different artist, and almost every record this morning actually. I was listening to a whole load of unissued Motown I've got that you know through the northern soul scene, either on tape or on acetate disc. Uh And you sit and you think, even this morning, I thought I knew a lot about soul, and it was a really big one. It was something like What Become of the Broken Hearted or something. I can't remember what it was now. The song I was listening to, and I thought, This is really good, who's singing this? And it was Jimmy Ruffin. I I didn't even know he'd done it well, well, he'd never been issued, so how would you know? But, but. basically, as soon as some session session was finished, they'd come in, there'd be another two hours, and Jimmy Ruffin would have the same band as the previous ones, he'd have a go at it, and the best one got released, you know, or what they perceived was the best one got released, you know. That's the other thing, is the amount of music that was being made back uh, then, it was incredible. Unbelievable. I mean, you're talking about, I mean, I also liked, one of the searches I did was I had all the Motown release schedule of what was being released on what day, who was in the studio on what days, and... You can counterweave stories then because there's one story I tell about the assassination of um, three young guys who are killed. It's in the August chapter, and they're killed by a rogue unit of the Detroit police on the last day of the urban riots. And these kids are murdered. I mean, much like some of the things that have been going on recently, where their families never get satisfaction, there isn't a there isn't a reasonable kind of court case or anything like that. Mistrials, all sorts of things. So I'd written a lot about that, but I also knew that when they arrested these two kids, there was also another murder of a a police band leader's son, Uh and when they arrested the two guys, I knew from the arrest warrants that they were arrested exactly the same moment that the Supreme sacked Forms Ballard, so you can juxtapose two entirely disconnected stories, and they happen simultaneously, and it gives, it enriches I think, the story of the book, because you're following a murder mystery, and suddenly you're back to the Supremes, and she's been sacked, and you're back to a murder mystery again, and just it gives context, I think, wider context to a story.
0: Oh, absolutely, That's, that's what runs through the book, is this wider context, and you can understand, I think, that Betty God is not just coming to terms with all these changes and the changes in Detroit, Detroit but yeah. also the changes in having a successful group of artists who yeah. suddenly, they're not going to just say well, I get paid the same wage for the thing I did yesterday.
1: I, I want, you know and the biggest one he faced actually was that by far and away in 1965 more money revenue was generated for the Motown Corporation by the writers Holland, Dozier and Holland yeah. and not unreasonably as would happen if they were working in a TV independent or a pu- publishing company suddenly they start to say well you know we are making the revenue for the company why don't we share in the share issue now Barry Gordy had been always the single share owner of the Motown Corporation and with his sister had been the owner of the Jibet Publishing group within the Motown Corporation and it was against his family's kind of beliefs that you diluted the share of the ownership of what they considered to be a family business, and so he was quite hostile to diluting shares and it may well have been that he just simply called it slightly wrong, or maybe he didn't find the right way of compensating those men at that time, but they were asking for a chunk of what he believed was his business he'd put up the risk capital, he'd been there when they weren't around, and they were actually all three of them failed singers that he'd he'd subsidised at some parts of their life so there was all sorts of tensions going on. But the other thing I would say and this is not in defence of, of Barry Gordy, he he had I, I remember telling this story actually in relationship to Still Game. Now yes. there's something that completely <laughs> and utterly are unconnected, yes. right? The history of, of Motown in Detroit and the history of Still Game in Scotland. One of the reasons I was mentioning it to is one of the executives at the company that, that developed Still Game at the comedy unit um, had been reading the book in its its, uh, pre-publication state and she had been struck by an argument that Barry Gordy had put forward which is that artists have to take responsibility for studio time. The studio time has a cost, right? If you're going into the studio to record a record, that has a cost attached to it when the record is released and starts to make an income or a profit, there's a cost attached to making the record and that has to come off before the artist is in profit, if you like. It should be similar in publishing and whatever. And um, I remember her saying to me, oh God, I'm I'm not sure I could ever get away with that argument with Ford and Greg. (laughs) It's still game. Now, she was joking, but she was actually making a really important point, which is, I think that in advance of that, that company had funded three or four pilots that went nowhere yeah. as risk pilots with that talent, with that staff some of which was paid for by BBC Scotland but some of which was deficit funded by the company, uh-huh. you know, and it gets to a stage where if you're really running a creative business, you have to look at the ways in which you can make that work commercially yeah. because if it's always just about the artists getting what they want yeah. then your business is fucked
0: and you can't have flip. Stone Rose take taking
1: five years to make a follow-up album. We're Correct, good. yeah, because and it doesn't matter because the studio is just going to be like a metre and it don't keep ticking. The company will pay for that. You know, well, I don't think that's a fair creative balance, you know, and Barry Gordy certainly believed that. No, he did.
0: I mean, yeah. he thought uh, I, you wouldn't be here at all if it wasn't for me Mate, to kind of yeah, funding
1: you. And yeah, but I want you to be well paid. Look, where he maybe made the mistake was it became very, very volatile. Now, I can bring this back directly to Scotland. Um, Scotland's been referred to once or twice in the book, not a lot. But there's one bit in the book where James Jamerson of the um, Funk Brothers um, had been quite influential on the Holland Brothers, Brian and Eddie Holland of Holland, Dozier and Holland. Everybody in Detroit's interested in the trade union movement because the unions, particularly the negotiation around the car contracts, was an annual ritual, and Walter Reuter, the head of the uh, car union the United Automobile Workers was, was a big presence within the city he was probably as big, if not bigger, than the mayor and all of that. Now, the number two to Walter Reuter was a guy from Paisley called Doug Fraser, right? right? And he was he was the number one negotiator for the UAW. So he was by some distance the if you like the grassroots person that the trade unionists or the wildcat strikers communicated with. You know, if something if, if some if a shop steward down tools because of a dispute at that plant, Doug Fraser would be in working out where the union's right. position was and blah. And he was quite a big big figure. Now, I found out, and it was actually a, a, soon after, just as I was going to publication with the book, that, um, that James Jamerson of the Funk Brothers who is by some distance probably the senior musician of the Motown stable, right. had, this, uh, had created this illusion or delusion that he was Scottish, right? right. Now, in fact, he was from North Carolina, right? <laughs> and black and was, and was not Scottish, right? But he perfected this growly Scottish accent and he would shout at people over the studio, get that done now, right? And 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 I'd I actually asked a woman who I'm in touch with, who's a backing singer for the Andantes, the Motown book, and she was online, and I said, James had this thing that he said he was a Highlander or a Scot or whatever, he said, yeah, he used to shout in this gruff accent, but I don't know where it came from, because at times he said he was Irish and then he was Scottish, and... No one really quite believed him, but when but when he was a heavy drinker and right. he liked raw whiskey, and he claimed that it was his you know cultural right to drink it drink on duty and all that. It, yeah. <laughs> so he's this bizarre character, but it was only a bit later. I'd been in touch with Lamont Dozier, who had been part of the dispute with Gordian, and he'd gone on strike with the Holland Brothers, yeah. and he said to me, "Do you know what I think it was?" was that he kept listening to the Scottish man that was the, the car worker on local radio... And he thought that if you were in dispute with your manager, you spoke like that. That was what he conceived a union leader to be. Yeah. And he had he imitated Doug Fraser's accent basically. Now it's kind of weird that because here's a man from Paisley who's migrated to Detroit, got a job through the union, worked his way up to the top of the hierarchy, but still got a really good West of Scotland accent. Aye. And a Motown musician is thinking that's how you argue with your boss in an accent like that. Now he was actually the union negotiator for Motown, uh, James oh, yeah. Jamerson in fact the first ever strike they had was in Renfield Street's 1965 when they'd come to the end of the, what was actually a pretty disastrous tour and they were wanting ca- more cash in hand uh-huh. and Mary Gordy had to get money wired into a bank, I think it was a British linen bank or something in Renfield Street right, to wow. pay them the money to go on stage that night in Glasgow You know, and so him and another guy called Earl Van Dyke who was a Keyboardist were the only two people that the studio musicians believed had ever want to fight with Gordy, so they became these characters that always were at the front of disputes and all the rest of it. And you started to see Motown almost as a kind of a, a union plant, you know. Yeah. Where and very later on in life, uh, I've got the circulation for there was a a, a, a voice paper, a black uh, voice paper that came from the the. Um, Campus of Wayne State University, and that was a much more radical black power. Publication rather than a union-led one, although it was quite Marxist, it's quite a Maoist um, uh, paper as well. And I, I, you know, you look down the this is at Wayne State University down the circulation list, and there's Marvin Gaye on the list of people <laughs> that got the magazine. You know, so he was having to deal with all of these currents of thought that were around as well. And he was, he was a businessman. Yeah. He, he was still trying to. I mean, he was still winning awards for Black Businessman of the Year and African American Entrepreneur of the Year, dealing with all these crazy heads that were some of them were off the skull and some of whom thought they were Scottish and weren't, you know, couldn't it have been easy
0: <laughs> Yeah, I mean Marvin Gaye is an interesting character because I often wondered how did he go from being the kind of archetypal soul singer Ain't No mountain high enough, enough to then yeah. what's going on a few years yeah, later sure, a yeah. really political yeah, album yeah. and this kind of explains it, the it does, book yeah. explains
1: it Yeah it does because it also places him in that context of change and also you see around him many things happening, I mean not least with his own personal life but an awful lot of things that you see happening and uh, the big big probably the big influence there was that um, his brother um, uh, Frankie Gay was an active service in Vietnam and, and actually was in a unit that was trapped out in uh, a, a, a kind of jungle area in the kind of uh, you know the, one of the delta areas of the of Vietnam and he was almost literally having to hide for days on end submerged in in jungle, uh, in a delta jungle, you know, underwater um, or at least mostly underwater and he'd he'd written a series of letters back to Marvin at Motown who of course was now internationally famous and so having Marvin Gaye as your brother you know, they were in touch with each other all the time And I had a wee bit of a kind of strange but wonderful experience one night when I was a student in Washington, D.C. There was a Marvin Gaye memorial night. He was by now dead. I was a student in D.C. And I saw this Marvin Gaye memorial night, uh, Washington homecoming of the great Marvin Gaye, you know, 10th anniversary of death or whatever it was. And it says... Uh, original song sung, sung by his brother Frankie Gay, who's a very good singer, actually. So I thought, yeah I'm going to go along with that, you know. But it was quite aimed at a kind of black nightclub, sort of older African American audience, right. you know. So I was going to be, for the first time in my life, a bit young and very white, um, <laughs> or red raw. And so I went into this bar in Washington, D.C., a Supper Club bar, and you could either sit at a table and they bring you waiter service or go to the bar, in which case it was cheaper. So I thought, I'll take a seat at the bar and see where it goes. Everybody in the whole bar were probably in their 40s and were black and they were out and the big finery and everything, you know, zoot suit stuff and everything. It was great, you know. And I looked over at the other side of the bar, I mean, literally at the end of the bar, here was this white woman with longish auburn hair. And I thought, Oh, don't be class. Don't go. Hello, are you white? Can I can I sit next to you? I mean, it was just embarrassing. So anyway, I, I just uh, said, "Go. On, can I have a beer, please?" And the guy said, "You want a Miller Light? You want a Budweiser? You know, got you right through the menu. You're like, oh, stop, stop, stop. The cheapest one, please. You know it was like?" So anyway, I said, "Oh, I'll take uh, I'll take uh, a Budweiser there, a bottle of Budweiser." And I was pointing away, and here this voice comes over the bar. Are you Scottish? And I said, "Yes." And she said, come over here, come over here. And it was a woman from Aberdeen, right? Right. And she was at the bar. And she said, I want you to come backstage now and meet my husband, Frankie Gay. And I was taken. And Frankie (laughs) Gay had married a girl from Scotland who he'd met in the States. Who was from Aberdeen. And um, she took me backstage. Now, they were staying in an apartment uh, in Washington DC for the run of this thing, the hired apartment uh-huh. and they took me back to the apartment with some other band members and other people and I sat down and I spoke to Frankie at length and he had with him which I think was probably his party piece was this kind of plastic folder of letters from Marvin Gay and Frankie Gay to Marvin Gay mm-hmm. that he'd got when Marvin passed away he'd got all the letters back but he also had his copies of the letters Marvin had sent him when he was in Vietnam and he said, I've not marked them, but I want to point you out in pencil some of these things. And he started to point out to me lines and words from What's Going On. Wow. Where he had taken, almost like Bowie used to do, yeah. a collage of stuff from his brother's letters, you know. And it was Frankie's belief that the beginning of the song, Brother, 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 let me tell you what's going on across this land, was not the generic brother of kind of the street language for African American guys it was a brother, his brother brother. and it was almost like his testimony and all the references to Vietnam and the trigger happy police thing and things like that, the trigger happy police comment comes from the killing of the young men in the August of 1967 where one of the prominent African American Politif- politicians of the time talked about the Detroit police being trigger happy yeah. and then that comes up and so you can see almost like he's surfing the newspapers and the correspondence of that era and making this fantastic I mean, I think the greatest concept album yeah. in the history of recorded music. I mean, it's just immense, yeah. you know. Because it's it sits somewhere between social comment and trying to redefine Christianity in a world where you can't quite believe in God the way that what you maybe once did as a kid. And I mean and, but he's also kind of getting into quite kind of spiritual stuff like Save the Children and you know, all of that. It's it's an immensely deep and complex album, you know, it's beautifully sung and everything. It's you know? incredible yeah. and shouldn't yeah. work, the amount yeah. of the layers the that layers are on that it. It shouldn't. No, it should f- fall over, shouldn't it? You know, but it's great, you know.
0: Um, he seems to be particularly affected by the demise of Tammy Terrell. You touched yeah. on it earlier on. And that's, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of tragedy in the book, but the book, that
1: but, is particularly tragic. Hugely tragic because I think that he... He was going through a very difficult time with his... Um, He's gone through a very difficult time with his wife, who's Barry's mm. sister, and who's slightly older than her, her. She was desperately keen to have children, yep. and eventually they, they they had a child that most people now say was the the was actually their niece's child that Marvin Gaye had given, that she'd given birth to a child surrogate on their behalf. Now, how that was achieved, whether it was done medically or whether it was done through consensual sex or whatever, I don't know, and I maybe you never will know. Yeah. But that's the, now the settled kind of truth that right. she was really keen to have this child and eventually they did. But it was never, by this time it was a marriage that where love had been lost and his next concept album here my dear is actually the divorce album so I mean there was a lot of bitterness between them and they were living in Berry Gordy's house in um, in um, in a place called Monica Drive and and I sort of feel sometimes you know when I was researching the book and I was in Detroit I went to the corner of it's called um, it's called Outer Drive and Monica it's an intersection in a suburban area of Detroit um, near a place called Palmer Park and I always remember that I would get uh, a taxi driver would drop me off and I'd walk along the blocks and I'd walk maybe 10 streets 10, 10 kind of doors along and then come back again and kind of look over the wall and look in the you know trying to get a kind of thing of where they live. Now they'd long since moved in. Yeah, yeah. But I remember one woman come to the door saying, Are you looking for something? <laughs> you're thinking, No, I'm just a nosy bastard this is I'm uh, you know but as "Look, I'm a student, I'm doing some work in this area and la la la. But you know there was things things that were quite important because during the snowstorm I'd remembered Marvin Day saying that he looked out his window and there was just a sheet of white snow in the merid- the, the, the the median mm-hmm. the, the, the kind of part in the middle of the road and it was just very kind of odd that you know you could go there you also liked playing baseball between the cars right. and he would throw his baseball or his football or whatever and it was just nice getting a physical picture of where all that was happening there's a great photograph of him standing in the alleyway the alleyway and from there I could work out that it was still the same tree and still the same you know triangle above the door so things that were I mean at one level quite kind of geeky but it gave me a feeling that my research was meaningful yeah, you know sure. but he had been quite a loveless house for them to live in and uh, I think really he'd he was never uh, or at least I could never um, get any evidence that he was ever sexually attracted to or sexually in love with Tammy Terrell no, no. but they were deeply spiritually in love in yeah. a broader sense and I think much in the same way that um, much in the same way that great kind of partnerships often are that you, you actually build up a almost a kind of need and a reliance on that other person because they know the moves, they know the routines they know your weaknesses and your strengths they know when you can improvise and when you can't and, you know, and she was just Absolutely brilliant for him, and they were the great, the great duet singer. When she passed, uh, when she collapsed, first and foremost, myth has it that she yeah. fell into his arms and whatever, and that was the kind of romancing yeah, of it. In actual yeah, fact, yeah. they were opposite sides of the stage, and he wasn't quite sure if she'd fallen or not fallen. And he knew she wasn't hadn't been very well, but that was not uncommon for her to be quite sleepy and whatever, yeah. you know. But um, the curious thing about that was, I, I reap, I reap. Um, told the story of her falling apart through kind of three different things, one of which was, I went back to the students who'd organised it through their student magazine, I've tracked down one of the guys who'd organised it through the student university, and I spoke to him at length on a phone call, and then, curiously enough, uh, my partner who's a Sri Lankan Tamil um, has a friend who was... Uh, who is one of Sri Lanka's biggest kind of neurological surgeons and who is a world expert on the neurological disorder that Tammy Terrell had. So I was all the time corresponding with this woman saying, give me some symptoms. If somebody was at this stage in the evening, what what would their behaviour like? Uh So she was giving me all these kind of things about kind of, you know, uh, dizziness, about, you know, uh, being sort of unsettled and putting on weight. And so I was able to kind of almost sort of, Guess what Tammy Turl yeah. was going through. Her sister then brought out a rather good, but a, a bit kind of sort of quite kind a of thin book. But it's a book about her sister. It's a kind of it's a love letter to her sister. But she was pretty decent with me, and I, you know I spoke to her on the phone, and she said, look you know." easiest thing in the world would for me to say, oh, uh, they they loved each other and they were upstairs shagging every night yeah. and they were, but it just wasn't, wasn't like true. that and there's just no point. And, you yeah. know, she's, you know, if if I thought that there was any value in telling that story, I'd written a book. I would have said it. Do you yeah. know what I mean? You know, but actually it wasn't true and the true story was better. It's than much that. better. Yeah, much absolutely. Better. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah,
0: yeah. he almost becomes a recluse after it, doesn't mm-hmm. it? I mean, he, he, as you say, there's other things going on yeah, in his he, life. but he
1: drops into a depression yeah. and, and actually becomes deeply reclusive. And then maybe it's the case that What's Going On album couldn't have been written by the previous Marvin Gaye. Yeah. I mean, there's a psychological thing there about he was quite a crooner. He was out there, oh, he was doing yeah. Las Vegas, he was a cool guy. He, you know, money was no object, women was not an object. And I think there was a side of him started to interiorize in, in the way that sometimes poets do, you know, yep. that it becomes about what's inside them as much as what they can witness out there, yep. you know. So he was dealing with the social album that is also deeply interiorized and personal, you know. I mean, it's just brilliant, you know. If anybody that's not heard that, they oh, should yeah. just go and buy it, you know. Definitely, it should be It should be obligatory, listen. obligatory, <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> and then, of course, other things that are out there as well, like uh, Lanark by Alistair Gray. There's a whole range of big concepts out there you can buy. Of course. We're not all in Detroit. Reading <laughs> we, we Lanark and listen to what's
0: going on, <laughs> that's, right, a way to that. do that's a do perfect it, yeah. afternoon. Yeah. Um, something else that puts the book Into perspective is (coughs) the cameos by other people, Muhammad Ali. There's a great. Chapter
1: heading called Muhammad Ali versus the Supremes. Which yes, is yeah, 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 And you've also got uh, Rosa Parks. Or Rosa sort? Parks. She pops up. Yeah, she pops up in, in. I think quite. I mean, strangely enough, without kind of going into the exclusive detail of this, I'm working with a, a company who are representing uh, HBO, the TV company, on the August of the book, which is where Rosa Parks appears, right? right? Wow. And what what it is really is that um, the riots have happened in the last hours of the riots. Uh, three young African American men are killed by a rogue unit of the Detroit police who, if you follow their story in the previous 38 hours have been responsible for the deaths of maybe two other men, but have also been the victims of one of their team dying in in the riots as well, so it's a very complex set of circumstances, but the the main leader of it, a guy called David Senak, who's a police officer um, is... Clearly, now tipped into being, you know, quite an ugly kind of racist character. He's worked undercover in the vice squad. He blames young African-American men and particularly a number of nightclubs, one called the Twenty Grand, another called the Algiers Mattel as being the epicenter of kind of pimps and prostitution and cocaine, cocaine dealing and things like that. And some of that's true, well, a lot of that's yeah. true. But you know, it tips into this quite kind of ugly racism in his mind. Now the irony of the situation is he'd been in the same class as Diana. Ross throughout his high school, you know so all of these weird kind of things that are going on now, what happens then is the brother of one of the three dead kids starts to suspect that his brother's been killed and that this effect of kind of, you know uh, assassination has happened or the police have just gone in and killed these kids and after the riots there was a lot of Suspicion by African Americans that they couldn't go to the police to report crimes because the, the police were part of the yeah, problem, is yeah, it? were. Yeah. So the Nor- uh, Conyers, who was their local senator, set up an office and said, if you have to register a crime, this might be a very kind of small thing, like you know, your liquor store got uh, the window smashed, or uh-huh. your, you know, or your back, or the the trees at the back of your house were burnt, or whatever it was, and you need to make a claim on your insurance, or you have to defend yourself against your landlord for damages, or whatever, come and register it with our office and we'll keep a record of it and that will be tacit to you reporting it to the police. And we'll then go and report these things to yeah. the police, kind of en masse, en masse if you like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which they did. Now, there was a queue right round his block and his office was, it's actually a trade union hall it was, not far from Motown's uh, studio. And they queued the block, including the brother of the assassinated kid, who then said that his first words were, I think my brother has been murdered by the Detroit police there is opening lines but he's sitting down and telling this to an old woman who's the secretary to it who's joined the secretariat of this report on the crimes now she is by this time Rosa Parks the famous Rosa Parks and she's working as a volunteer for the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People in Detroit where she's migrated to having been part of the civil rights movement in the southern states uh, earlier in her life and so she's sitting there recording this, this crime so that's the thing that HBO are interested in where you have a young. African American man who's only in his early twenties, yeah. beginning to become a detective to investigate the murder of his own brother, and his assistant or mentor is Rosa Parks, you yeah. know. So it's got a nice kind of cinematic feel to it. So. Yeah, yeah. So I'm discussing that just now, but I mean it, you know it's a way off anything yeah. happening. But you know, so it's been great, and you know, I've got other books to write and everything. So the
0: book is the first part of a trilogy, I believe. It is, yes. Yeah,
1: so we've got Memphis 68, and then I want to do a thing in Harlem, but I've been kind of usurped by a publisher as well who's asked me to do the social history of the northern soul scene in Britain. Okay. That's the social history of the UK the North-South Divide the, the, there's a whole lot of things connected to the miners' strike, to uh, the Ripper Inquiry, I mean there's a whole set of things, oh, wow. so it tells a social history of Britain from about 1967 through to maybe about the late 80s and against a backdrop of all sorts of political change and you know things going on, and it's the story of how Northern Soul evolved and how it came about and what it's kind of Meanings were and whatever, so, so I mean, do a lot in, of, that's, expert, that's that's coming out next, and then I'll jump to Memphis. Yeah, yeah. well, Stuart,
0: that's
1: the perfect place to leave it. thanks leave it, yeah. so much it's for doing that. It's an absolute pleasure, you know, really nice to speak to you. Cheers, so good luck and everything, you know. Thanks very we'll stay much. stay in touch. All right, I'm cheers. just going to have to jump now because we're on air in a minute.
0: <laughs> okay, the is there, so. thanks again. Cheers, nice to see you. All the best, cheers yeah. now, Stuart, and we'll be back next time with someone completely different. Cheers.